Hello, everyone. Today is August 25th, 2020, and welcome back to the Change Healthcare Policy Connection podcast. I'm Deanne Kasim, and with me again is Arian Malik, Senior Vice President of R&D of Change Healthcare, former ONC leader and current HITAC member. Good morning, Arian. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Today, we are also pleased to welcome some very special guests. Haley Nicholson, Senior Policy Director at the National Conference of State Legislators, State Federal Relations Division, and Emily Blanford, Program Principal in NCSL's Health Program. NCSL represents the legislatures in the states, territories, and commonwealths of the United States. Its mission is to advance the effectiveness, independence, and integrity of legislatures and to foster interstate cooperation and facilitate the exchange of information among legislatures. NCSL also represents legislatures in dealing with the federal government and is committed to improving the operations and management of state legislatures and the effectiveness of those legislatures and their staff. Haley, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what your team focuses on every day, and maybe touch on how you got to NCSL? Yeah, thanks, Deanne. Happy to answer those questions, and thanks again for having us. Um, my team focuses on state federal policy in the health and human services realm. So that's us covering anything from mental health, prescription drugs, Medicaid, runs the full gamut, child welfare. Um, what we do with our work is we're tracking how different federal proposals, legislation, changes can impact states and our members. Um, we also work with our members to get their feedback on what they want federal partners to know in those changes or legislation, what could be challenging for them, what could work for them, and then future suggestions they might have. Uh, one of the biggest vehicles we do this through is the NCSL Health and Human Services Committee. It's about 300 legislators and legislative staff from across the US, and we're working with them to be a voice for the states in the health and human services realm. Um, on your last question, how I got to NCSL, I have worked in health policy across a number of issues for several years, uh, both at the federal and the global level. And I really wanted to be involved in what I know are kind of the laboratories of change is happening in the states. They're doing very important groundbreaking work every day. And so it's just been exciting and a privilege to be able to work with them and learn more about the state work at this point in my career. Thank you. Great, well, thank you. Emily, how did you come to NCSL? What do you focus on in your work with the organization? Yeah, thanks so much. Happy to be here. So my team is the health program and we're based in our Denver office. And what we primarily focus on is the state level and the research side of things. And so what we do is we provide information, research, technical assistance, convenings and opportunity for collaboration to our legislators and legislative staff when it comes to all things health. So I focus on Medicaid policy and health program, but we also look at public health, behavioral health, pharmaceuticals, maternal and child health, as well as just generally access health and coverage. So all things health is what we cover in our Denver office. And my journey to NCSL started um, before I joined, I worked in Colorado's executive branch and I worked in Colorado's Medicaid agency for about 12 years in a wide variety of roles. And I was really excited to apply my executive branch knowledge and bring some of that over to the legislative side of things. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Um, and that's a great segue into uh, our first questions that I wanted to ask you, Emily. Um, when, we look, when we think about Medicaid and 
you know, the public programs of Medicaid, children's health insurance, health insurance marketplaces, how are all of these programs preparing for an expected increase in demand for their services? How is this playing out in the states? I mean, we have an economic downturn going on. Um, states are looking at some serious budget situations, and we really don't know uh, what the additional federal relief picture might look like. Yeah, absolutely. So on the Medicaid and CHIP side, um, many of the actions that states are taking to prepare for this increased demand um, are using flexibilities that became available with the federal emergency declaration for this pandemic. And that declaration allowed uh, states to use disaster response tools or authorities, um, things like Section 1135 waivers and other kinds of authorities that allow states to waive and relax certain things to try and help increase access and really leverage their Medicaid program to meet this increased demand. So states have used these kinds of emergency authorities in the past, you know, to respond to hurricanes or the Flint water crisis in Michigan, for example. And so in response to this COVID pandemic, every state and DC has applied and received a 1135 waiver, and it covers a lot of kind of general areas, big buckets that I'll describe here briefly. Uh, so one thing states can do with these waivers, so they can adjust Medicaid eligibility and enrollment. So, you know, one of these things is really streamlining enrollment and making it easier for people to enroll. For example, allowing people to attest to their income rather than documenting it for eligibility purposes. States are also providing flexibilities to increase actual access to service. You know, one of the key areas for doing that is leveraging telehealth and allowing it for more services and allowing it in more settings, as well as allowing for services, not just telehealth, to be provided in unconventional settings like the home or hotels, for example. States are also trying to, you know, increase access by waiving any sort of cost sharing requirements that may be a barrier for, for individuals. And they're also either adding new services or modifying current services. Um, you know, for example, many state Medicaid benefits have current limitations on them and states are relaxing those kinds of requirements. Um, they can also, you know, waive prior authorization to help increase access to services. Um, you know, or as I said, add-on services such as Arkansas, who have added a management and evaluation service for people with serious mental illness to try and provide regular check-ins that they may not be getting during this pandemic. And then lastly, you know, the real big place where states are trying to, to provide some investment to meet this increased demand is supporting their provider networks. And, you know, to do that, you know, it's providing payments to providers as well as relaxing some of those licensure requirements allowing out-of-state providers to participate and provide services. Um, we're seeing states provide, you know, increased payment to, to providers who are seeing real increase in demands. At the same time, also providing retainer payments to providers who may be unable to provide services due to COVID restrictions right now. So that's kind of a broad brush of all the activities we're seeing on the Medicaid side. As for marketplaces, we're seeing some activity there as well. Uh, 12 out of the 13 state-run marketplaces um, enacted special enrollment periods to really help streamline um, access to marketplace coverage for people who may have recently lost their jobs. Several states are also planning to um, start a state-based exchange moving from a federally-run exchange. Uh, they think they can do it more cost-effectively at the state level, and some states like Pennsylvania plan to pass some of those savings on to consumers as well. Now, federal marketplaces, you know, they didn't create a special enrollment period due to COVID, but they did have special enrollment opportunities for when someone loses their job-related coverage. So we've definitely seen an, 
and increase air, about 500,000 consumers gained coverage through that mechanism, which is about a 46% increase from the same time last year. Uh, and to facilitate this enrollment, federally run marketplaces are also trying to simplify and streamline eligibility by allowing people to attest to certain things rather than providing documentation. And then lastly, you know, for marketplaces so far, Premium increases appear to be fairly minimal. Um, some plans even proposing lower rates. Um, so we aren't seeing a huge spike in proposed premiums to respond to this increased demand, but that's something we're gonna keep an eye on for sure. And so, you know, in terms of economic downturns and budget shortfalls, um, federal funding through the CARES Act and other options are helping to offset some of these costs. Um, but policymakers are really faced with tough decisions right now. You know, how to really leverage these public and private options for coverage while these state uh, revenues are dwindling significantly. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really comprehensive view of all the, the different uh, things that are happening. So I appreciate that. Um, you know, one of the things that I looked at this last week was CMS did come out with their preliminary Medicaid and CHIP enrollment uh, information that they just updated this month for the last couple of months. And it shows that that enrollment is, is growing, uh, no surprise there. Um, I think it's safe to say, I mean, would you say we could expect this to continue into 2021? Is that a trend you're seeing? Oh, it is absolutely a trend we're seeing. Uh, you know, prior to this pandemic, Medicaid enrollment was actually pretty flat or um, decreasing in some states. Um, but, you know, we are seeing, so according to the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, um, for the 22 states reporting data in June, there was about a 6% increase since February. So we're absolutely seeing increases that we hadn't been seeing previously, and it is totally not unreasonable to expect this trend to continue. In addition, the kinds of Family Foundation and Health Management Associates, uh, they did a survey of Medicaid agencies uh, just to get their thoughts on where they thought enrollment might be going in 2021. And they received about 38 responses in nearly all the states that they anticipate enrollment to continue to grow. And in fact, might even grow more rapidly in 2021. Wow, interesting. Um, how, with this increased enrollment, you know, states are gonna to have to make some tough choices, I think, with everything that you've been saying. You know, where would we perhaps expect to see cuts if states are actually going to make those cuts, would it, whether it be eligibility, services, provider fees, what, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, yeah, no, due to state budget shortfalls, we should expect to see cuts, and we have seen some already. Um, now, right now, in this emergency period, states are fairly limited in the kind of cuts they can make. Uh, right now, they're receiving enhanced federal funding for their Medicaid programs, and there's some maintenance of effort requirements on that. And so right now, states aren't allowed to cut eligibility, and they aren't allowed to disenroll anyone who was enrolled um, at the start of this emergency period um, for the duration of the emergency period. States also right now can't cut benefits. So, so they are fairly limited, but again, like I said, we are seeing some cuts that have happened. Uh, the main areas right now are provider rate cuts. Uh, for example, Colorado had an across-the-board rate cut of 1%, and Nevada had an across-the-board rate cut of 6%. Uh, we're also seeing some states reverse their plans. You know, um, Utah, for example, was planning to roll out 12 months of continuous coverage for kids under the age of six, and they've now had to come back on that plan. Or Tennessee was planning to extend 12 months of postpartum coverage in their Medicaid program, and they're now reversing on that decision as well. 
And then lastly, some of the cuts we're seeing currently um, are administrative kinds of cuts, you know, cuts at the Medicaid agency level itself, whether that be staff salaries, vendor contract payments, or we're seeing um, employees being furloughed, particularly eligibility technicians. Now, once this emergency period is over, um, and if budget situation continues to decline, and you know, even if it doesn't, I imagine we will see more cuts potentially to uh, eligibility and benefits. You know, for example, um, in economic downturns, adult dental benefits are often the first thing on the chopping block. And, you know, for example, Colorado is proposing a reduction to their adult dental benefit, and Washington State is also considering those options as well. So I do expect we'll see more cuts, and it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, once the emergency period ends. Yeah, hard decisions for sure. Um, last question for you. So when we look at supporting healthcare providers and states, the CARES Act authorized HHS to distribute provider relief funds. And it also increased the FMAP, the federal match percentage by 6% for state Medicaid agencies. How are those two funding streams different and how have states used those dollars? Sure, so I'm gonna let Haley talk a little bit about the specific CARES Act funds, but I can talk about the differences. So the CARES Act provider relief funds, those funds are going directly to providers within the states, whereas the increased FMAP, which is the federal medical assistance percentage or the amount of federal funds that support Medicaid programs, um, that funding is going directly to the state Medicaid agency. And so that increased FMAP is bringing in additional federal money into to state Medicaid programs, and they're using those funds in, in different ways. Um, so as we mentioned, there have been some cuts, but some states are actually increasing in some areas as well. So for example, Rhode Island increased um, their overall rates by 10% temporarily. Um, some states are using this enhanced um, federal financing in order to cover, you know, the increases in caseload. And other states are using this enhanced federal funding to provide general fund relief in other program kinds of areas. So, so the main difference is FMAP is being used at the state level, and these provider relief funds are, are used at the provider level. With that, I think Haley can talk a bit more details about how that funding was distributed and used. Thanks, Emily. Um, the CARES Act, so the initial funding that went into that was $100 billion, and then $75 billion was added through the Paycheck Protection Program and Healthcare Enhancement Act. So those funds have been kind of going through, the first uh, funding going out the door was general allocations. It was about a, it was $50 billion split up into two different types of payments. Um, that funding initially was based on a different formula based on 2018. Um, uh, net revenue data. So some of the Medicare providers who qualify, they automatically got payments. Um, what we've seen since then is more of a targeted um, allocations to different um, provider populations, and that includes Medicaid directors. They had a 15 billion specific um, allocation for them. Um, it was initially said that if they had received any kind of funding from that first general round, that they would not be qualified, but they changed um, because of how the funding mechanism works, some of the Medicaid providers got a pretty nominal amount in that first general distribution. So this targeted, they could apply for this as well. Um, the deadline on that was also pushed back a few times because I know getting the data together, what the Medicaid providers needed to submit um, was a little bit different than the general. And so they needed, just frankly, need a little bit more time. So they've been, they pushed some of the deadlines back on that. Um, and then in addition, 
you know, there was also targeted funding for hospitals that have been particularly hit hard by COVID-19, rural areas, um, skilled nursing facilities, and the Indian Health Service. So these are all very targeted. Um, the funding mechanisms, it seems, you know, when this all started with CARES, that they were going to do kind of a grant rolling, grant-based application, um, but that was just knowing what providers were facing. I think there was a recognition that may not be the best way to do it. Um, so coming up with some different funding mechanisms, like I said, but also recognizing that may not work across the board for every provider. So that's kind of a quick breakdown of how that funding has gone out and what it's looked like. Uh, the Medicaid providers, like I said, that's a 15 billion specific for them. Um, I think some are waiting to see, will there be additional funding? Um, there's also talk of this potential fourth stimulus bill in the Democrats uh, bill that they had passed, there is included fund, additional funding for the provider relief fund and in Republican proposals, there's also um, proposed additional funding as well. So be interested to see if there is a fourth relief package, what that would look like. Um, and, you know, Emily and I, I think we can attest we've gotten several different questions on the provider relief fund. Our members still making sure that if they're applying or they have, they have providers that are applying, I mean, are they doing it the right way? Do they know the full details of, are they applying correctly um, and won't be, you know, punished for filling out the form incorrectly or getting funds that maybe they weren't supposed to get? So people are being very diligent about it. And it's definitely been a, a learning process, I think, for the federal and the state folks at the same time. Great. Thank you for that. Erin, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, thank you. Sir Haley, I'd love to ask you some questions relating to public health and public health interoperability. And maybe we can take a short-term and long-term approach to this. So short-term, we're in the middle of a crisis and state and local public health authorities are really the front line of the pandemic response. So I wonder if you can give, give us an overview of the state response uh, from a public health perspective to COVID-19 and how states are using uh, federal funding in order to address the response. And then we'll switch from, uh, and maybe you can also address what additional support as you're thinking about uh, additional legislation or funding mechanisms uh, would be most helpful to augment the uh, state and local uh, public health response. And then we'll switch our frame to long-term. Huh. Well, I can talk, I can open with, we can get a picture of the federal funding that has gone out recently. We're talking short term. So the two uh, relief packages included a number of different funding mechanisms for public health. Um, under Families First Response Act, I'm going to throw some numbers out there, you know, $3.1 billion for the public health and social services emergency fund, $2.2 billion for the CDC, with $950 million of that for state and local preparedness grants. Um, and then the CARES Act put an additional 4.3 billion into the CDC and 127 billion for the public health and social service emergency fund. And this is all in addition to funding we've seen for building up health infrastructure in terms of vaccine, diagnostics and other medical needs, which plays a big part in the public health work, both now and ongoing. Um, money going towards HRSA, which obviously is one of, you know, very much interacting with a lot of the public health frontline workers and all the people that are doing this day-to-day -day work. Um, and also the inclusion of some provisions for community health centers to use funding to maintain or increase staffing. I mentioned all this to say, 
these are all entities that play a huge part of public health um, providing care, but also doing those preventative campaigns down the line. People that know they need not just additional resources, but having, I mentioned the FY2020 piece because, um, you know, a big thing we get from our members is a lot of these programs, they may be getting funding on a one-year cycle from Congress, and that is not a sustainable model. And I think one of the unfortunate, fortunate silver linings of something with what's going on right now is that states need long-term funding. That's how they have to plan for their immediate and for their future. Um, and so having this kind of funding mechanism where they, you know, you look ahead is something that's been really helpful. And a lot of the, the public health funding I just listed, um, a big part of that is infrastructure. What does the state currently have and what do they need and what do they need to build upon? Um, and so I think also one of the most interesting funding pieces when we're thinking about the future was there was 2.2 trillion given to address health, human services, educational and economic impacts of COVID-19. Um, that's a lot of different topics, but that's public health. Public health is behavioral change. It's including all different aspects of a person's health and life. And I think, you know, there has been a recognition very much so from the states and from some federal partners that when you give that kind of investment, it shows a recognition that these programs are all going to be integrated and that for states to reach the public health goals they want, they need that funding, but they need more importantly, the flexibility. How can they tailor it to work within their systems? And that's another piece um, that this funding I've, I've seen has been more flexible about and a recognition that Health and human service programs are very integrated and that all plays into public health, but states need support to make sure that those systems that they can work together. That's even just the day to day uh, technical systems that they're using, trying to work and you have a person, an individual, what programs are they enrolled in and why aren't things more interconnected? Sometimes that could be a state needs resources to update technology or that could be a staffing issue. And so this is definitely investments that can help with the immediate situation, but also has given states an ability to say, this is what we've assessed about our public health systems and this is what we're gonna need to move forward. Um, I will say also that prior to the pandemic, there was a recognition in Congress and there was some legislation proposed to you know, update public health infrastructure to look at the future of public health, recognizing all the work that a lot of these workers do and the day-to-day -day, uh, opportunities that they can provide to constituents and making them healthier, making communities stronger. Um, you know, unfortunately that has been put on hold, but I would not be surprised if this comes up once things are a little bit more settled that Congress will take up this public health piece again. It came up quite a bit. And also looking at, like I said, this funding cycle, not just one, to one, one year to the next appropriation, but multi-year funding, which is something that Congress had recognized. Um, all of the relief funding I just mentioned is around $413 billion going out the door in just a few months to states, which is a lot for them to take on. So I'm going to let Emily talk a little bit about if she wants to share kind of some of how these funds, what the states have been doing as well. Sure. Thanks, Haley. Um, so, you know, as we mentioned short term, you know, really what we're seeing is states trying to respond to this pandemic. And so, 
what we're seeing for the use of a lot of these funds is really states investing in their testing infrastructure, their case identification and contact tracing efforts. And, and that's really where we're seeing a lot of activity at the state level. You know, so for example, Alabama has started contact tracing efforts and they're using some of these federal funds, but they're also repurposing some of their their current resources and they're gonna start using existing state employees and shifting their focus to contact tracing. So we have Alabama doing that or Michigan's Department of Health and Human Services is doing a large scale effort where they're going to work with 2000 volunteers to try and coordinate with state and local public health departments on contact tracing activities. And just another area where we're seeing kind of outside of contact tracing, we're seeing some more investment in community health workers and the kind of work that they can provide to respond in times like these. Like for example, uh, Delaware is trying to create a collaboration to connect people who have tested positive for COVID to a community health worker, help them coordinate some of those maybe non-medical needs that they might have, you know, setting up grocery delivery or finding housing during a temporary quarantine. You know, we're seeing connections to community health workers for that. Or Hawaii is trying to expand its current um, curriculum at its universities and community colleges for community health workers to be well-trained in contact tracing so that, again, they can really create a more robust system um, at their state level. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, that was uh, that was extraordinary, uh, really a turn of force of, of thinking about public health funding. You know, it sounds like thinking about the long term, the number one request that you have is sustainability and consistency of funding um, and flexibility of funding. You know, I'd like to ask a question about the, um, the infrastructure level of preparedness for the future. What have we learned and what funding mechanisms would be most helpful for improving and increasing interoperability and information flows uh, to help us address uh, both COVID-19 in the next calendar year, but also to address future pandemic preparedness? I would say long-term, and I've kind of said this throughout, is the flexibility piece in funding is something we constantly say, but truly, when you think about a state and you're looking at interoperability and building up infrastructure, um, and this is something I hear from our members. I go to different conferences, hearing from different states. You know, when people are talking about how they built their platforms, the story is different for every state. What they need and where they're at is just going to, it's really going to be different state to state. And so having, if there's a federal investment, looking at as flexible as those funds can be, saying you get to evaluate where you're at with your stakeholders, where do you want to be? What are the outcomes that are gonna benefit your communities most? Um, I think this also comes up in conversations that Emily and I've been in about social determinants of health, for what will work for one state and what they may get approved to do for a waiver or different programs is going to be entirely different for another. It could be transportation access, it could be um, the interoperability piece, do they have the ability to make systems integrated um, so I think that is just, I can think long-term, if you're thinking about federal support and funding, as much as you can let states customize that um, and also give them a little bit of breathing room. Sometimes this funding comes out, people have great, wonderful ideas, and they have to report out within a year. Um, working, you know, with state legislators, it's, that's 
pretty quick considering a lot of them also are working at their jobs. And so I think it's just being mindful of giving a little bit of time, flexibility, um, and letting that be customized to what they want their public health outcomes to be and what they want their infrastructure to look like. Absolutely. And I, I think the only thing I would add to that is, um, you know, we're still learning lessons here and what we're going to to apply in the long term. And, you know, another one of the ways states have been using CARES Act funds is to really reevaluate their preparedness plans. And, and I think, you know, with this whole pandemic in mind, and I think we're going to learn a lot more lessons from those kinds of reviews as well. And, you know, with all this injection of federal funding, it's going to place a new you know, level of scrutiny and attention on this issue, which has been a longstanding issue in terms of sustainability of funding for both public health infrastructure, but also the interoperability necessary to support it. Fantastic. Thank you. So again, the you know, big themes are consistency of funding over time, mechanisms, and sufficient flexibility to tailor state and local response to the specific needs that are uh, that are need to get addressed to to get to the outcome that we all seek. Great, thank you, Erin. Thanks, ladies. Um, I, I wanted to shift a little bit to telehealth questions because that's been such an important part of this response as well as I think it will remain or an important part of our healthcare system. As Seema Verma recently said, the genie is out of the bottle in terms of you know, moving telehealth forward and relaxing some of those previous regulations. Um, there's been a lot in terms of emergency actions, uh, federal and state level. What emergency actions have been taken at the state level that you've seen, maybe some highlights there, to enable telehealth access? Yeah, so all 50 states and the District of Columbia have made some revision to their telehealth policies in response. Um, so yeah, I got a few examples for you. Um, Arizona now requires insurance companies and health plans to cover out-of-network telehealth, as well as decreasing co-pays for telehealth services. Um, we're also seeing many states, um, including Missouri and Texas, are now allowing for phone consultations, which were previously prohibited. Um, and back to 1135 waivers, all 50 states in D.C. have also obtained 1135 waivers, allowing um, to increase access to telehealth and Medicaid. Um, and in fact, over 30 states have actually increased their Medicaid reimbursement for telehealth to be equal to those in-person visits. And then lastly, you know, several private health insurance companies have also been changing their telehealth coverage policies. Uh, for example, Aetna is offering telehealth visits for any reason without co-pays, and Humana is waiving telehealth costs for urgent visits for 90 days. Great. That's pretty comprehensive. Um, when you think about the federal flexibilities that were relaxed, um, particularly for Medicare, um, what are some of your ideas about what should be kept in place? after the public health emergency expires. Any thoughts there? Yeah, um, well, so under the both the relief packages, a couple of different things happened in Medicare. Um, you know, first under Families First uh, Coronavirus Act, there was a much more ease on different Medicare require, telehealth requirements that have been in place. Um, and it's focused during the public health emergency, but as you said, um, CMS is definitely eyeing that genie is out of the bottle and people are kind of liking and I think have it's been a long time coming for some providers that these changes and flexibilities need to happen but the big ones were focusing on who can provide the telehealth services so being a little bit more flexible about which providers could be allowed to provide services 
how they could be reimbursed, um, and the location of the patient and the providers. I think Emily mentioned this earlier, where a patient can be, and this, this kind of was coming up before the pandemic in a number of services that when patients can be in their homes for a service, if it's safe for them, um, you can actually have better outcomes in some instances or have just a little bit more consistency of care or a person being receptive to getting care. Um, and so I think that location piece was a big part of, you know, when that change was made, people have definitely responded to that well. Um, and the flexibility on the providers involved in doing the services. Um, the CARES Act to highlight, I think, from that, and it's not directly Medicare, but the um, allowing federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics to also use these uh, services for patients in another location during the emergency. Um, I would say them and Medicare providers would all be on the same page that it was very important to change this location, right? You don't wanna bring a patient in for an unnecessary, possibly getting an infection or getting sick, but it's also kickstarting a culture that some providers have had success with, are having success or trying to get off the ground is getting patients more comfortable doing telehealth visits. People use their phones all the time, but if I, I will say personally, some telehealth visits, I'm like, am I gonna do this? This seems really awkward, but it's not. It's, it's actually a lot easier to use. It's just getting out of old habits. And I think providers, you would say, this is helping kickstart a culture that we've needed, um, not just for patient safety and outcomes, but it can also help with sometimes your staffing issues. That would obviously be an issue during the pandemic, but maybe even after just depending on the location. Um, and I think this was also said by the administrator of CMS, um, Seema Verma, that not every in-service visit will be replaced. This is not what these changes mean, but it is changing this culture beyond a public health emergency that can just give people a little bit more flexibility, give providers what they see as this could be beneficial for everyone if we just do a little bit more of the preventative space and follow-up space doing some telehealth and not having such rigid requirements in place. Um, and so I, and Emily had also mentioned the 1135 waivers. I think that's been an area too. CMS is asking now, what should we make permanent? What should we keep in place? They want people to weigh in on this. And so, yeah, I, at the end of the day, I think it's those waiving in Medicare. Medicare is a really easy way when you're wanting to make changes. It's a federal program that they can kind of go on and do it quickly. Um, the waiver was another great avenue. So I, I was, I think it's been beneficial in many ways. There's definitely, you know, challenges, but um, I think those waivers of location and provider involved has been extremely helpful for some communities. Yeah, yeah, I, I would completely agree with that, particularly um, the ones that are more rural. And, and on that topic, I wanted to ask a follow-up question. So when we think about telehealth um, access, it's a combination of the technology as well as the broadband to support it. You know, how are state health policymakers thinking about the funding mechanism to enable that technology, that telehealth access, including um, investing in the technology itself? Um, I know there's been some federal resources made, but you know, what are you seeing in terms of highlights from the states? Sure. So the issue of broadband in particular, it's it's another issue that's been longstanding and, and highlighted by this pandemic, you know, the need for the urgency to address it. Um, and so, you know, 
lot of the state activity we've been seeing related is really in making the changes to allow for the telehealth delivery and less so on the technology side. You know, while smartphones and the technology have made accessing telehealth easier, you know, there's still barriers in terms of, you know, the investment on the provider side in some of this technology. And then there's concerns on, you know, how to get consumers to, to use this, this stuff effectively. So these are still ongoing conversations that we're, we're seeing. And, you know, particularly in broadband, there's a lot of activity um, regarding that topic at the state level. You know, for example, we saw at least 400 bills proposed during this 2020 session to try to address this issue um, with a handful of states enacting some things. Uh, so Mississippi, for example, uh, is providing funds to public utilities uh, to provide grants to electric cooperatives to try to immediately expand broadband in these underserved areas in Mississippi. And then we've also seen like New Mexico, for example, is using some of their CARES Act funds to give grants to tribal governments and schools to expand broadband specifically for both distance learning and telemedicine. Great. Yeah, that's definitely a good combination. I know New Mexico is um, one of the pioneers, really, in telehealth through Project ECHO. So it doesn't surprise me at all that they're looking to take it to the next level uh, for learning. Uh, last question on telehealth. When we look at parity, payment parity um, in particular, have you seen anything in the state so far addressing that issue? That is a great question, and we do think that will be one of the hot topics when a lot of the legislatures come back into session. Um, an in-person visit, is it really comparable to a telehealth visit, and should we be paying the same rate? But I will say Colorado, in July, they did pass a bill um, to make permanent reimbursing for telehealth services at rural health clinics, federally qualified health centers, and the federal Indian health services to pay those at the same rate as, as in-person treatment. So we are seeing that in at least one state. And again, I think it'll be definitely a topic of discussion when everyone's back in session. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, there was a re recent Senate Health Committee um, discussion on that very topic, and senators seem to be kind of split, whereas, you know, in an in-person visit, of course, you have overhead, and you have to clean the room, and supplies for cleaning and all that. Where telehealth, you don't have to clean a room uh, because you're, you're virtual. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out on the federal and state levels. Haley, Emily, thank you so much for joining us, uh, sharing your insights regarding your experience with NCSL and the important work that they're doing there. Um, to our listeners, thank you for listening and a shout out to all of you on the front line. Um, everyone's doing their part to keep us safe. We appreciate it. Um, also, don't forget to check the show notes, listeners, for links to resources and contact information related to today's show. Uh, stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the policy, healthcare, and IT topics that you care about. For more information on this topic, check the show notes, see our website, changehealthcare.com. I'm Deanne Kassim with Larry Mount, and we hope you have a great day and stay well. Thank you. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare podcast. For more information on this and other healthcare IT topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.